HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Hi, I'm Joe Campanelli, and this is In the Drink, which has everything to do with wine, cocktails, and other beverages, and absolutely nothing to do with golf on heritageradionetwork.org. My goal is to, to demystify the wine process by hosting a variety of winemakers, sommeliers, bartenders, beverage directors, and people who do great things with all things drink. If you miss a live broadcast, you can always find us archived at heritageradionetwork.org and as a podcast on iTunes. My guest today is Shane Benson from New York Vintners, which is one of my favorite shops in the country. Uh, New York Vintners is a great wine shop that has both a passion for the classic wines of Europe and a loyalty to quality wines from other notable regions, such as uh, just a great selection of domestic wines, which we're going to taste a few of them later today. Um, no matter if you're looking for everyday drinking wines, undiscovered specialties, or rare vintages, New York Vintners' warm and enthusiastic approach to wine will suit your taste. And it, it suits mine. I'm, I'm down there all the time. So thanks so much for being with us, Shane. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Um, well, what I wanted to get started with is uh, just asking you a little bit about, about your history. Um, you know, uh, you started off not in the wine industry, not even in the food industry, and uh, made a career change. And now you own one of, one of the greatest wine stores in, uh, in New York City. So how did, can you talk to us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, I, uh, I went to college and um, fell in love with food first time, just uh, having a weekend job in a restaurant at Ohio Wesleyan. And I graduated and was an accountant for my father. And realized that I not only hated accounting, but also hated working for my parents. So I, uh, I went off to school and went to the Culinary Institute of America um, to get a degree uh, in, in cooking. And uh, loved, really, really fell in love with uh, food and then wine at that point. And um, when I graduated, I kind of knew that I didn't want to cook for a living. And I ended up um, on the floor of the American Stock Exchange 
and I tried to keep my hand in uh, in in food and wine. At that point, I had gotten a job at Italian Wine Merchant, which was a great retailer in New York City, and uh, on the weekends. And a few few years later, a couple friends from from that store wanted to go out on their own, and we kind of together opened up New York Vintners in 2006. And um, the stock exchange world uh, has died down. And in 2008, I left the exchange and went to New York Fitness full-time. So what's the, the biggest piece of advice you'd give to someone who's looking to make the leap into the food or wine industry? Well, I think it's important to, A, realize how much hard work it is. And I think you probably know that. I mean, we're sitting here doing a radio show, but I'm sure there's plenty of late nights at the restaurant. And it's it's not all as glamorous as it would seem. But at the same time, it's uh, it's a it's a... It's a work of passion. You got to really love it, and if you do, the exposure you get, the people you get to meet, the environment is is just phenomenal. Especially being here in New York City, you get so much exposure. Even in a place like Roberta's that we're sitting in, they have a garden on the roof, and it's just it's a it's an amazing industry to be involved in. So, for for those of you listening at home who don't know, New York Vintners is uh, a great boutique wine store down in Tribeca, and. Uh, it's it's quite different from the the national large chains wine stores. It's uh, definitely a local neighborhood store. And what are some of the unique challenges with with being a smaller store competing in this world of uh, being able to purchase online and and the price competition from from larger chain stores? Well, <clears throat> because you're paying Manhattan rents, so you don't get the luxury of of having rows and rows of wine, which it kind of it's a blessing in disguise because it makes you focus on what's really important. People don't really want to come in and, and have a hundred selections of say a Cabernet Sauvignon. It's better. Uh, people are all very busy, especially in New York and, and they wine is, there's so much wine out there that's impossible to know everything. So they really look to the, uh, to the, um, retailer to give them value. It's kind of like, I always use the, um, the analogy that, as long as I drop my car off at the at the shop and I know it's going to be fixed, like I, I can't do it myself. So if I trust that person to do what I can't do, then then there's a lot of value in that. And that's the way wine is. People really love wine. We do more wine education than anyone uh, in the country. And really, people people don't want to be intimidated by wine. They want a good product. And as I think both you and I know, there's even with every price point, there's good wines and bad wines. Okay, but there, you know, as you said, there are hundreds and thousands of different Chardonnays and Cabernets out there. What's the selection process, and how do you weed down wines that, that you feel are appropriate for the store? We, we try to find the best wine at every price point, and, and there are $10 wines and $100 wines. And really, for me, the, it all boils down to uh, who makes the wine. Good people make great wine, and, and a great wine is always has balance and, and things like that, the balance between acidity and fruit. And, and I guess you could point out different components depending on what specific wine you're talking about. But at the end of the day, um, just like life, anything that's a great wine, it's got to be in balance. That's really what we look for. And talk to me about some of, uh, some of your favorite people, some of your favorite winemakers, and what connects you to... How do you know they're a great person if they're on the other side of the world? Well, winemakers are the craziest people in the world. Uh, I've never met, uh, of all the industries in the world, people who are so diverse um, because winemakers the true winemakers and not the people that are the face of a winery but the the Giovanni Menettis of the world 
on on one hand they are they're farmers and and most of them if they said if you ask them straight away what what do they do they say they're inevitably farmers um but they're also salesmen and businessmen and promoters and marketers and philosophers and they're they do a little bit of everything and they're just crazy crazy unique people and and there are always uh, some funny stories when you meet them we um we do a lot of dinners and events at the store with winemakers and the luxury of being in new york is that it's the greatest wine market in the world i mean every wine if they want to to gain some sort of international foothold has to come to new york city and and therefore we get to get them to come into the store and don't have to pay them which is great <laughs> and i definitely recommend everyone at home to to check out not only the the wine dinners but the afternoon wine classes i think they're they're a great bargain uh they're all listed on newyorkvintners.com um, usually forty or fifty dollars for you can taste a bunch of different wines and 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 be led through a great tasting. It's it's just a, an amazing experience. Yeah, it's we teach over fifty unique classes at the store, and most of them are two hours. And um, we do anything from pizza and the wines that love it to super esoteric uh, folk, uh, focus on Barolo or something like that. And reality is that the demand for food and wine education is is at an all-time high it's the reason why we're sitting here and people don't want to be uh they, they want to make it accessible for them and it's why we watch cooking shows and and wine and wines even it has a tendency to be um a little bit more stuffy whereas today's 25 year old professional goes home and wants to have a glass of wine they just don't want to be they don't want to be made to feel um, ignorant about it and uh, and that's kind of what we do and it's fun, it's a lot of fun it's a great way to spend a, an afternoon day and, and to really just kind of because it's really, there's no right and wrong in wine, it's all personal it's like people, you have to just understand what it is you like and why and then and then you're going to go out and have a, a great experience and, and that's, I'm sure you see it at the restaurants a lot, you, you get one shot it, hopefully if you get a, a good smile the way you are and someone can tell you what they like, they're gonna you're going to be able to hopefully match their palate to a good glass of wine but in new york city you can you go out and spend 15 dollars on a glass of wine and you don't like it it's uh it's hard and so you really kind of have to understand what you're looking for you can't go into a a restaurant or my retail store and say i want a, a, a glass of chardonnay because it doesn't really mean anything yeah i really believe that if if you can focus on honing your vocabulary and explaining what it is that you're looking for you're going to have better drinking experiences yeah, uh, make the most of your money, <laughs> make the most of your money. Um, let, let's talk a little bit more about the the nuts and bolts of uh, the retail wine industry uh, when I worked at Italian wine merchants back in 2005 uh, I remember a list and people would call in all the time and there was a list of states that you are allowed to ship to and plenty of states that you weren't allowed to ship ship to and um, these these laws have been liberalized to a certain extent, and now are, that you're allowed to ship to a lot of to many different states that we weren't before. Do you think that wine that the regulations as it uh, you know pertains to the the retail industry are going in the right way, or are we still? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously ages? the uh, all the the wines in relation, or I'm sorry, the laws in relation to wine go back to a period of of. Of prohibition and, and most of the states that have um, prohibition, of, I'm sorry, regulations against shipping to them have some sort of um, 
underline whether it be religious or uh, some some reason for why those la- uh, laws are the way they are. Like for example, Utah is a, a difficult sh- uh, state, um, but those in in the modern society, a lot of those restrictions have been uh, loosened, especially for the wineries in America can now ship directly to the consumer. And, and I think that all in all, it's a great thing because you can, you just, you're, what you're getting is more access. In New York City, we're, we're, we're very lucky because we have access to everything. But if you're a, a wine aficionado in middle America, your access 15, 20 years ago to the great wines of the, of the world was literally non-existent. So it's a great thing. The, the, the wine culture in America is absolutely exploding. The way, the way the food culture, I think, exploded ten years ago with the birth of the Food Network, and and wines coming right on the, right on its heels. And wh- why do you think that that wine is exploding? What are some of the factors that, that have affected that? Uh, to be totally honest, I think people love at the end of the day to to have a drink, and um, it's difficult to go home. The cocktail and beer culture has changed um wine has proven to be a healthier beverage uh and and people like it it's 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 it there's also a certain sophistication to wine that just doesn't exist in 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 other beverages there's some artistic component i use the analogy in class a lot um people will go to a restaurant and have a glass of Johnny Walker Blue and it'll be $40 or something crazy like that. Even a bottle at retail is probably $150, but you're going to get 20, 30 drinks out of that bottle. Whereas people won't bat an eye to go to one of your restaurants and spend $75, $100 or more uh, on a bottle of wine, but that bottle of wine only has five drinks in it. And there's just some innate quality in wine. It's, It's more art really than anything else. And I think I think that even on the lower levels that that is starting to to gain traction. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I see that are young kids that want to learn about wine and there's it's something sexy about it. Um I, I like to think that I'm one of the uh, young. <laughs> well, That's at least very true. At least one of the young. <laughs> part. Uh, so let, you know, we're on the Heritage Radio Network, and uh, I wanted to talk about some of your maybe your favorite heritage grape varieties. You know, uh, there's there's Cabernet planted all over the world, Pinot Noir planted all over the world, and I'm looking at some of the wines that you brought, and they are there. We have a Cabernet and a Pinot Noir, and they're two of my. Uh, well, the Pinot Noir is one of my favorites. I haven't tasted that Cabernet. But what's a grape that is an obscure grape that is having a moment right now that's sort of a heritage or heirloom grape that people should be drinking? I mean, for me, Cab Franc, because uh, it has that balance uh, of acidity and fruit. It also you know, kind of has this green pepper tones when made well. It could be a little finicky. Plus, it's 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 a grape varietal that for a long time was mostly just used as a as a blending grape, obviously in Bordeaux. Um, but but I have seen in the last few years some people trying to make single varietal uh, wines out of Cap Franc that I, that I've that I've found to be fantastic. Um, but there's so many great grapes out there. Pretty much though, if you're looking um, if you're looking for more obscure grapes, you're going to have to go to countries like. Italy and uh, Argentina or Chile or places like that. 
And are there some heritage techniques that uh, that you're very interested in? I know that I'm particularly interested in uh, amphora-aged wines, and we serve quite a few of them true. at my wine bar, <laughs> Amphora. Um, but do you find that people are, are interested in more old-school techniques of winemaking or the, the most modern, newest technology? I think really everybody's kind of going, pushing back against uh, certainly the use of, of, of new oak in, in winemaking. Um, there is a huge movement now back towards this idea of traditional winemaking, which is it's it's ironic. There, there's a lot of is the wine biodynamic or is the wine organic, and um, we we get that uh, question in class a lot. And I I had a tasting midday with um, Monica Soldera probably uh, six months a year ago. Monica Soldera is a famous uh, producer uh, of Brunello. And I, and I asked her, I said, she's a, a very reserved woman, very, um, uh, how do you say? She's very, very uh, statuesque. And I, and I said, what do you, what's, your, what's your thought on, on organic winemaking? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And uh, she said, I don't understand. I was like, well, you know, I get questions in class all the time about organic winemaking. And she looked at me and she goes, Shane, my family's been making, making wine organically for 400 years. So the reality is that organics uh, or pesticides, they're, they're a very new phenomenon. So you have these old world winemakers that have been making wine in this fashion forever. And now it's very trendy for some winemakers here in America and, and across the world to, to kind of go back to this natural winemaking. And, and that's one thing that I really look for uh, in certain winemakers is uh, using natural yeasts and, and things like that and, and to make the wine. Because inevitably the product is probably not as consistent but in terms of year to year. But what you get is a, is a, a product that's unique and it has a certain life to it. So. All right. We're going to talk a little bit more about natural and organic winemaking and traditional wines. But first, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Shane Benson from New York Vintners on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. grass-fed beef pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef free-range, sustainably produced humane Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the American West We're back on uh, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Joe Campanelli here with Shane Benson from New York Vintners. And we were talking a little bit about traditional versus modern winemaking techniques uh, before we left. Uh, exhilarating stuff, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, those, those are terms that, that we, throw, we throw around a lot. And uh, I find that I personally keep gravitating towards this idea of, of traditional winemaking or winemaking the way that it was made in the past and becoming very romantic and, and nostalgic about something that maybe isn't always 
uh, always totally justified because I think that uh, you know now now we certainly have wines that are are uh, uh, higher quality and, and more consistent than uh, than they ever used to be. Um, but uh, what we try to try to focus on at the restaurants at least is having traditional wines that, uh, wines using traditional techniques, but you know, of, of a higher quality that still wants to still say something about, about a place. Um, uh, and I, I know that you guys focus on that down at, at New York Vintners as well. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're an extraordinarily producer driven, uh, retailer. The amount of vintage variation that exists in 99% of the wines out in the world is, people generally couldn't tell the difference but and i think that there's a large movement towards this traditional winemaking but i think if you really dig into what it is it's people who are not taking shortcuts and inevitably the people that are making natural wines they're kind of stupid because it's so much work and they're at the end of the day running a business and but they're kind of just throwing they're artists they're throwing a lot of oh i could do this and make more money out the window because what they want is to make a, a better product and and so i think that the the traditional winemaking methods i i tend to gravitate to them personally also but in reality anyone that's doing that is a is a more conscientious winemaker and i and i think that that always shows in the product and how do you define this uh, idea of natural wine? This is a highly contentious subject and something that, that comes up all the time on In the Drink. And uh, what, what's your personal definition of that? It, I mean, it, it is a difficult, difficult thing to, to truly define. And I've, we've sat in, in, in a room with winemakers and, and people that are actually making wine and, and have them argue about it. But basically, it's some component of of letting the grapes do what they do less fertilization more use of natural yeast a lot of guys will go into biodynamics a lot of people believe in in the idea of planting with uh with uh what is essentially the farmer's almanac and and a lot of different things for me for me it's probably if you generalize it more than anything it's a it's it's an approach where the grapes make the wine as opposed to the man making the wine or woman more of a philo- philosophic approach to winemaking. Yeah, great uh, winemakers think they're farmers, not winemakers. So, Shane, it looks like you brought three of your favorite wines from New York Vintners here uh, to share with us today. Um, and I'd love, to, uh, I'd love to talk about them a little bit. We have, um, what's this first one you have? Well, I, bought, I brought three wines, two of which I know you like because, you know, I wanted to stack the deck a little bit. But, and then I, I brought a... Uh, I brought uh, a kind of a wild card wine, but the reality is the three wines I brought are are from three of our favorite producers. And, it, and again, I, I've said it a few times, but it's all about the producer. And um, I guess we could start with our good friend uh, David and Jasmine Hirsch's uh, Bohan Dillon, and um, it's a it's a Pinot Noir. Um, it's a great story, and, and, and every great wine is, is a great story is uh david hirsch was uh, a new yorker uh self <laughs> self-described hippie who who left uh new york city i guess in the in the 60s and went out and bought a goat farm in, in sonoma which was you know absolutely desolate area at the time and and he uh his aunts found out his ancestors had had made wine 
in Europe and decided he wanted to replant with grapes. And for the first probably, I guess, 10, 15, 20 years of, of Hirsch Vineyards, it was uh, purely providing grapes to what then became some of the most, most famous and collectible California Pinot Noirs. Uh, and and then I think around 2000 made his his uh, started making his own wine and the wines are uh, I think both you and I agree are fantastic, and the the wine I bought to brought today is uh, their Bohan Dillon, and one other thing and with all great winemakers I have a I have a big problem, generally speaking with with winemakers that only make one wine like one super high end wine because. The reason for that is that all grapes aren't aren't grown equal. So if you take a, a cluster of grapes, what people do that make a super high-end wine is they t- only take out the great grapes. It's like uh, a little bit like cutting cutting the crust off bread and throwing away the crust. But great winemakers, what they'll do is they'll make a more approachable wine with the less so-called less desirable grapes, or and and then make a premium wine and they'll price it accordingly. And that's what's great. And uh, and the Bohan Dillon is kind of their everyday drinking wine. And, and we, one thing about wine, and we focus uh, or stress this at the store when we do our classes, is that I don't want to come home every night and drink a $1,000 bottle of Lafitte Rothschild. Or if I'm on the beach, uh, the best bottle of wine may not be a California Zinfandel. There's, in, a, in the culture of America, there's this reliance on scores and, and things like that and 100-point wines and the reality is that if you are on the beach with your friends and it's 100 degrees out, a so-called 100-point wine might be the worst wine you could ever have with it. And really, there's a perfect wine for every time and food, and, and that's, that's what's represented in, in this bottle. One of the things that I, I love about your store is how completely devoid of any critical scores or reviews all of the wine bottles are. I, I really don't want to buy wine based on what someone else thinks. So, so I think that your approach allows for the customer to, to talk with someone in the store who knows about the wines and for them to choose a wine that's really appropriate for not for the person and, and what they're going to be enjoying that wine with. And one of the things I love about this, um, the Bohan Dillon, is that it is from one of the coldest areas of Sonoma, and it was desolate in the 60s. And they're, in terms of Sonoma, they're, they're pretty far out there uh, today as well. And it's a, a California Pinot Noir that is low in alcohol, 13% alcohol, uh, which, I, which I think is a fantastic thing. You know, from a sommelier's perspective, it pairs a lot better with food. And from a drinker's perspective, I can drink a lot more of it without, you know, without feeling trashy the next morning. Yep. So uh, what a delicious wine. And then what's the second one that you have here? The Fontodi County Classico. So Classic. you and I both spent time at, at IWM and... and uh, Italian wine has grown so much internationally, and the quality has gotten so much better as these conscientious winemakers uh, started to come to the forefront with you know the Super Tuscan movement and things like that. And I brought the uh, 09 Fontodi Chianti Classico, which is uh, Fontodi Estate is owned and run by two brothers, one of which is Giovanni Manetti, who's a good friend of the store and comes does a lot of winemaker dinners, and it's just. It's spectacular what you just mentioned, food wine. It has acidity and fruit, and it's so good with dinner. It's versatile. Again, it's it's made with a little bit of lower in alcohol, and it's just great wine. The other thing about it, too, is that it's approachable now, but will also age 10 years, which is a lot for a Chianti. Um, 
and that's that's one thing we try to stress. It's all about education. The reason why we can, when people can come in the store, we don't have to give them scores is because hopefully we can educate them. And the best thing you could ever do in in the wine world is walk in and if unfortunately in New York City we don't have a lot of room for uh, storage, but if you buy a case of Fontodi Chianti and and with your significant other, you, you have a bottle every anniversary. It doesn't have to be marriage or whatever. Just pick a day and drink it over the life. That's where you truly will start to understand wine, its evolution, and and take some sort of enjoyment out of it. And, and this wine is it's a great example. It's not an expensive wine. He makes um, higher level wines based on that idea of whether it be a single vineyard or grape selection. But for an everyday wine, there's no better wine than than the Chianti. You speak a lot about education, and uh, I'm definitely a, a, a bit of a wine nerd who just moved in <laughs> with my girlfriend, and there were so many boxes of wine books, I thought she was going to kill me. But uh, I, I really believe that with wine, the more you learn about it, the more you're going to enjoy it. And wine is all about enjoyment. It's one of just the great perks of being alive. It's it's yeah. something that's just a great little fringe benefit of having taste buds. And uh and I, I really do think that you know a few few extra things about it, you understand it a little bit better, you're gonna enjoy it uh a bit more. Um so something that I know nothing about is this last wine. So hopefully you can you can tell yeah, me. Yeah I definitely wanted to stump you on one. Um it, it's a great story. Uh when I first came to the store full time, we started doing education and we had all these classes. Anyone that knows me knows that I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. We'll throw it up there. We'll figure it out later. And so when we started doing classes, we, we, we only had three classes. We had a pizza class, a homemade po- uh, Italian pasta class and wine 101. But we would always ask feedback from the students. What 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 else do you want to uh, what else do you want to learn about? And and one of our biggest responses uh, was that they wanted organic uh, wine classes. And this is four years ago, I guess. And at the time, I didn't know anything about organic wines. We didn't, if we carried any, we didn't do it. I mean, it's just a very new phenomenon in the wine world. And so I agreed to do an organic class, but I didn't know anything about it. But I was like, oh, you know, we'll figure it out. No big deal. So, uh, it starts to get close to time for the class and I'm starting to stress out that I don't know what to do. And I get a LinkedIn message from this winemaker in South Africa going, Hey mate, I'm coming to New York. I'd love you to try your wines. And I think you and I both know this, that if we, if we answered every call to people in New York city that wanted to get a wine in your restaurant, you'd you'd never be able to leave. But, uh, I checked out his email address and it turns out that it was a nature preserve, uh, an organic, uh, wine estate in, in Stellenbosch, South Africa. So, I was like, yeah, I'd love to meet you. I'd love to meet your uh, try your wine. So he he comes to New York, and it's like the it's like the world's longest blind date. And he walks in the store, and and uh, I really just wanted him to come teach class uh, for free. <laughs> and uh, and it, I ended up trying his wines, and they were spectacular. And then, long story short, we ended up getting his wines in the United States. And the winery is called Mui Plas, and uh, the winemaker is Dirk Roos. Um, it translates into beautiful, uh, beautiful estate, and he is uh, just one of the great, great winemakers. He and his family own this estate. They all live there. It's in the heart of Stellenbosch, which is spectacularly beautiful. And what's unique about this wine and what, kind of what I wanted to bring as a counterpoint is that it's a current release from the winery, but it's a 2000 vintage. And 
Again, it's not an expensive bottle of wine, but what they've done is instead of releasing the wine when they made it, they've held it back for 12 years. And that's a very, very difficult decision for a winery because essentially you're lending the money to the end user. And if there's one thing as consumers of wine we don't get the opportunity to do is to drink an older wine. Uh, and, and this is an example of a, of a wine who is starting to show this elegance. And it's hard for, for uh, novice wine drinkers to appreciate it, but when you get to drink great older wine, it's, it's, uh, it's spectacular. This is also an example of a very delicious Cabernet Sauvignon. And Cabernet is kind of not having a moment right now in New York City. There's a little, there's not too much Cabernet love going on. Um, so I'm excited to, to see when I, I find that even I, I take part in that. I don't drink a ton of, of Cabernet. And you're, you're seeing it on fewer and fewer restaurants. It's just completely not, not in right now. Um, do you find that in, in the retail store as well? People are not going towards big cabs yeah absolutely i mean it, i guess you can kind of be referred to as the sideways effect um which destroyed Merlot. but it really things go in fashion and out of fashion and and um you know i find myself drinking certain things more than the other but the one thing that you can always appreciate is quality wine and it's funny i don't i personally don't drink a lot of bordeaux I find it very difficult to drink, but every once in a while when I have one and I have a great one, I'm like, wow, Bordeaux is really good. Okay, we have one last question. Okay. And um, I really want to know which wine would you love to see people really embrace and drink a lot more of? What do you think people are missing out on? Mm, That is a good, well, I think rosé, right? Well, we're at the end of summer, so so not as much, but I love to see... uh, I love to see people drinking rosé. Five years ago, a guy'd come into the store and be like, "Oh, I don't drink rosé." Now you go out, you go out in the in the summer now, and you, you'll, you guys on a, a bachelor party will be drinking rosé. And I think it just there's nothing better than a good glass of rosé. And I think the stigmatism attached to it uh, is gone, and and I, I think that's fantastic. I'll take it one step further and drink rosé in the middle of the winter. If you're going to drink a Ooh. white in the winter, you could drink a rosé in the winter. Lopez de Heredia. Lopez de Heredia. <laughs> Great Rioja Rosé. Well, thank you so much, Shane Benson from New York Vintners. Uh, check them out down in uh, Tribeca and at newyorkvintners.com. And thank you so much for listening to In the Drink. I hope you learned something or at the very least now have an idea of what you want to drink for dinner tonight. And uh, thanks again, Shane. Um, you can always find archived episodes of In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org and on iTunes as a podcast. Remember, we're live every Wednesday at 10 a.m., and if you have any questions for the program, you can call in live at 718-497-2128 or email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. See you next week, and thanks for listening. for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.